0: Hey everybody, welcome to Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I am your host, Mark, and I want to thank our sponsor, AKG, for setting us up with their podcast for essentials kit. The Lira mic and the set of headphones that come in it are amazing. If you've ever thought of starting your own podcast, this is hands down the best way to do it. Poet Joseph Massey was kind enough to spend a little time with me. He discovered poetry after a particularly troublesome childhood, which included neglectful parents and spending one school year by himself in an auditorium. He spent his time after that reading and writing poetry, corresponding with some of the most influential poets alive, like Sid Corman, Robert Bly, and Allen Ginsberg, who gave him a lot of advice and encouragement. Joseph was so dedicated to his art that he wound up living alone in a shack and almost drinking himself into oblivion. And just as he was turning everything around, he was blindsided by unfounded and anonymous accusations, which cost him his livelihood. But he's rebuilding and has found a strength that he didn't even know he had. But that probably won't keep him from getting texters' thumbs like Kanye. Follow Joseph on social media at jmassypoet. Subscribe to his Substack for regular poetry fixes. Follow us at Performance Anx for regular podcast fixes. Give us a coffee fix at ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety. Merch is at performanceanx.threadless.com. Now let's ease into our conversation with poet Joseph Massey on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network.
1: This is the poet Joseph Massey. I'm on Performance Anxiety Podcast. And uh, yeah, buy my book, A New Silence. Published in 2019 by Shearsman Press. You can get it on Amazon. And you can follow me on Substack. Subscribe to my newsletter, josephmassey.substack.com. That worked. Okay, good.
0: Like I said, this will be the least academic podcast you've ever been on. <laughs> Alright. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Hopefully it'll be a fun one, though. Okay. Oh man. I don't know what's going on with my throat today.
1: Well, what's going on with mine is that the, the wildfires from uh, the West Coast have made it their way all the way. All the fumes and the smoke have made their way to Massachusetts somehow, 3,000 miles that's, away. Maybe
0: that's what's going on. I'm in Virginia. It, so. it,
1: maybe. But, yeah, here it's been hazy skies. And, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, from wildfires 3,000 miles away man and that's, it's a, but it's very irritating
0: that's amazing you, you know you'd think that stuff like that would dissipate over 3,000 miles
1: it's amazing it tra- I mean just to travel that long a, a vaporous substance like that I mean yeah yeah I guess it just catches a stream and that's it But uh, yeah so it's caused a bit of a scratchy throat but I feel good
0: good good well I'm glad you could join me and, and discuss a little bit of poetry because I don't really know much about it but through having a couple poets on the podcast I've really started to develop an interest <clears throat> in it and you know I'd like to learn more about it so I kind of discovered you through Twitter through um, a post I follow a few people that are re- apparently really big fans of yours, like Patricia Heaton and, and a few other people, and um, they would like your posts and retweet them. And I said, "Well, all right, let me let me look into this guy." And and uh, I liked what I've read. I don't I, I don't know much about it, but it's very interesting to me. Not not only the poetry, but the visual aspect of your poetry as well. I'm a photographer, so that kind of catches my eye when I see something that, that's uh, unusual, like uh, some of the poems that you've, you've published, and we'll, we'll get into that a little later, but uh, I'm very excited to have you on.
1: Thank you. Thanks for inviting me.
0: And to find out where you're at now, obviously, we need to go back and, and see where you've come from, and I know that you didn't exactly have it easy growing up, and... You know, We don't need to go into too much detail with anything because I've seen interviews and I've listened to some podcasts and, and, and you've covered it pretty well. And if anybody is interested in going back and, and finding out more about that, you've, you've written an amazing article on Quillette and it's been published in other areas and, and, and people have read it as a podcast. And uh, so I would recommend if, if anybody's interested in that more detail about everything that's gone on, check those out because I think you've pretty much covered everything. There's really no, no new ground that we're going to uncover by going yeah. over it yet again.
1: Yeah. So
0: yeah. where so, so where did you grow up? You grew up kind of in the area that I live in right now, didn't you? Like it was in Delaware.
1: I lived in Delaware from the age of 13 to 21. But prior okay. to that, I lived uh, in a, an area called Chichester, Pennsylvania. It's not far from Philly. It's uh, lots of little refinery towns, dirty old towns.
0: Right. Like the Pogues yeah. said.
1: Like the Pogues said, yeah.
0: And were you an avid reader as a kid? What, what were you interested in growing up? Was it reading? Was it music? Was there
1: artwork? Well, when I was a when I was a little kid, I was totally into action figures and totally into coming up with my own, my own theater, my own world's alone. You know, I didn't like to play with other kids so much, unless it was some kind of sports related thing. And I I was physically active, but my favorite thing was just be alone, you know, with a cinder block somewhere in a corner of a, of a, of a yard that hasn't been touched in forever and just, uh, (laughs) play with my, uh, with my action figures. But around the age of 12, I, I started reading a lot more and, uh, Yeah, I write about this somewhat at length in the Colette essay that you mentioned. I I found a biography about Jim Morrison. Didn't like the doors, didn't care about the doors, but for some reason I bought this biography.
0: You're more of a fine young cannibals guy, I hear.
1: I think at the time I had (laughs) FYC carved into the back of my head, shaved into the back of my head. (laughs) And it was some some old school barber did it, and he hated my guts for asking him to do something so time consuming and pointless. He had no idea who fine, the fine young cannibals were. So yeah, I wasn't really a Doors fan, but I became a fan of who Jim Morrison was when he was younger. And cause I saw myself in him as far as being a delinquent and, but being smart and, um, and I read the books that this book said he read, and I got interested in Arthur Rimbaud, the French poet, and then really got deeply into uh, the Beats, the Beat Generation, so to speak. Um, Jack Kerouac, in particular, Allen Ginsberg, right. and on and on. That's so. It, it was the age of twelve in the sixth grade is that's when it really that's when I became a poet.
0: So that's when you actually started to write your own work.
1: Yeah, I was in a permanent in-school suspension. They they about a month into the school year, they told me don't go to class anymore. Just go sit in the auditorium. And uh, I don't think they could get away with that now. I, was gonna say, I don't even
0: think back then that
1: was legal. I seriously doubt it was legal. A lot of things that went on in that school were not legal. This is Harlan Elementary in Wilmington, Delaware, and it's a very old school. It was a very rough school, you know, full of kids who are really poor. So most of the kids didn't have much bandwidth for school itself, but they were acting out their their own traumas as well, Um, you know, and yeah, I was I acted out quite a bit and defended myself when I was challenged Um, and they knew I was smart and they said, just go. Sit in the auditorium and it was this very old auditorium. God. Really kind of beautiful, almost like sitting in a church or something, you know. I, I, yeah. I really liked being in that kind of solitude. And uh that's where I started writing.
0: They just left you alone in there? Did they have teachers come in and try to teach anything? Or you just there by yourself?
1: There was a music teacher who took an interest in me and she would drag me out of the auditorium occasionally and she would have me help her do things in her classroom. Wow. Yeah. They thought I had some musical talent. Some the band teacher said I had a horn lip. And he tried to get <laughs> he tried to get me to play trumpet <laughs> but, but, uh, there was no practicing trumpet in a, you know, apartment building, you know, and then with my mother and stepfather, they just, they couldn't handle it. And I, I couldn't really take the trumpet to like the courtyard in this complex of apartment buildings. It just would have been, uh, too embarrassing for me. So I had to give it up. That
0: horn lit I've never heard that. That almost sounds insulting.
1: It does. You got <laughs> a horn. That's probably something lip. else that's illegal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I had—he said I had like the best tone he's heard in, in in quite some time. So I guess that's all has something to do with the horn lip.
0: What was you were writing? What were you doing with your poems in the sixth grade? I mean, were you just writing them and collecting them and just trying to get through? day to day? Cause I know, like you said, you know, your, your mom and your stepdad were pretty abusive and, and, you know, drug addicts and your grandmother had her own issues, which you go, That's right. like you said, you know, you, you go through that in, in pretty good detail in, in that article. So what were you doing with your poetry? Did you have a plan for it?
1: Not at all. No, I, that, I, I had a composition book. It was your classic kind of marble, marble cover composition book. And, um, it was just therapeutic to fill it up with this language that wanted to come out of me. And at that time, I hadn't really found found my footing, but it felt great to see my words on the page. And it just felt amazing to write, to articulate, or to attempt to articulate the world around me or what was going on in my head. But I had no intention of doing anything with, uh, I had no ambition in that sense. Uh, there was no, nothing, I wasn't thinking about a career at 12, but I was right. really, really just wanting to survive, and poetry became a, a means of survival. And th- that was its most important function to me at that age, certainly.
0: Did you show anybody the the work that you were writing?
1: No, but my grandmother found that notebook that I had first started writing in and uh, burned it. Oh, because it was uh, blasphemous. She said it was blasphemous. Oh, yeah. Okay. There dirty words. There are too many, too many curse words. I guess I don't know. She said it was filth. And uh, wow. yeah, I, I was staying. I, I stayed with her in the summers, and I was kind of turning the corner of the house, walking down the, the little sidewalk towards the back porch, and there was all this smoke. And there was my grandmother, who was like four foot seven, wearing a muumuu with flames, (laughs) you know, at her feet, wearing her Dr. Scholl shoe, kind of stomping out the ashes. And um, yeah. And so I I learned how to I, I just I had to hide my notebooks from that day forward.
0: So you were still determined to write that didn't discourage you at all
1: it upset me but it, but it also was some kind of um affirmation that i was writing something that had an effect on on, on somebody on my grandmother anyway uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> that's you know that's a good point that that's kind of affirmation that you have an aptitude for it
1: yeah yeah it, i i succeeded in in some way that was like that was my first review really I was just seeing it burning
0: <laughs> that's a hell of a review man
1: <laughs> the best one, yet. yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and you started writing and reaching out to other poets, some very well-known poets, poets that even I know, like Allen Ginsberg. How did you decide to just start to reaching out to these people?
1: Well, at that time, I was living in Dover, Delaware, which was um, pretty pretty barren for for a kid who's interested in books and. And poetry and the and the arts. Um, I, we lived in a trailer park behind a, a NASCAR stadium. Oh wow! And uh, yeah, and it was just very bleak. The landscape was bleak, and uh, I didn't know anybody who liked poetry, read poetry, wanted to talk about poetry. So, but I spent a lot of time at the library, and that provided me with all kinds of company in the form of books, but but also in the form of this reference book called uh, Contemporary Poets. And uh, I forget who published it, but it had like bibliographies for the poets and um, for most of the poets had their address. That's So uh, yeah. Uh, so they had Allen Ginsberg's PO box. I didn't expect <laughs> a response. I, did, I didn't know. I, I just, I, I wrote to him. I, I, I think I wrote it on a typewriter with like some drawing paper because I didn't even have actual typing paper. So it was like very thick paper. And, wow. um, yeah. And I, and I sent him a bunch of poems, maybe three, not that many. And, uh, he responded. Yeah. He, and it was a handwritten postcard in an envelope. And that, he said the poems were better than what he wrote at 15. Wow. Which, yeah. Yeah. And told me to read William Carlos Williams and Gregory Corso.
0: Now at, at that time, I'm. I'm. I'm just assuming you knew how high of a profile he had.
1: Oh yeah, yeah was, he was a legend. Yeah, yeah. he was a legend. I mean, he was godlike to me at the time, and. I wouldn't say he's godlike to me now, or no human is, but um, I I, th- I have even a better appreciation or, or a stronger appreciation for his work now uh, than I did then. I think just with time and experience, I can go deeper into his work. Okay. Whereas at the time I was still learning. I was still uh, trying to understand why Ginsburg or any poet would do certain things in their poems. And I still always try to figure that out when I read, but I just have a better sense of things now. But, yeah, I was fully aware of who he was culturally as a figure, um, as an iconic figure. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I was blown away to get, that, to get that mail from him.
0: Oh, yeah. That but, had
1: to be amazing. Yeah. But nobody in my family had any idea Jeez. that. They, I mean, I told them, but they were just were like, oh, okay.
0: Whatever. Yeah. Who's that? <laughs> yeah. Oh good for you. Man. Yeah. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> 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 so that one must okay so you've got some amazing advice for and and encouragement from Allen Ginsberg. Who else were you were you reaching out to at that time? Who else act, took an interest in you?
1: Robert Bly uh did as well. Wow. And that was another total surprise. He, he sent me a typed up letter, a copy of a Recent book of his, I don't remember the title, but it was a book of prose poems, which was a, another layer of education at the time, because I didn't really know what prose poems were. I had some sense of it from Rimbaud, but um had never seen a whole book of prose poems by an American poet.
0: Uh, you, you're probably going to have to explain some of this to me, because like I said, I'm, br- I'm brand new to trying to get into poetry. So uh,
1: what is yeah, well, in prose? Uh, well, a pro, uh, prose poem, it's kind of an, an oxymoronic uh, term because <laughs> poetry is not prose. That's kind of what distinguishes it. Okay. But basically, a prose poem is its a poem that's in paragraph form. It's in sentences. There are no line breaks. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's a block of text.
0: Oh, okay. So that makes more sense to me now. Yeah. Yeah. When did you first get published? I'm
1: assuming well, that's was the published. right term. Yeah, I was published in uh, my middle school's literary magazine. Oh, cool! Um, yeah, I never went to gym class because it was just uh, a nightmare. was so very—I was very introverted at the time. Oh, you're already and, in the um, auditorium.
0: You should have been in there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is after that. <laughs> okay. so this, this is this is going. This is when I lived in Dover. I was in another school, but I would go sit in the library and they just had a bin where people could just put their poems for the literary magazine. And I would just write them on the spot right there and put like three or four a day in the bin. Wow. And, um, they published a few of them on like one page and all the poems were illustrated. They didn't know what to make of mine really. So they il- just illustrated it with scribbles, just like some, some scribbles. <laughs> like, I don't know why, I don't know what, I don't know what, don't know what they were trying to get a, get across. I don't know some kind of uh, fog or something. I don't know, but, uh, interesting. Yeah. But that, that was exciting, even though it was just, uh, you know, the, the, middle school literary magazine but the first serious publication was in a uh, a magazine called House organ and um, the poem they published is really terrible <laughs> but the the editor knew how young I was and I think wanted to really be supportive and 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 he ended up being supportive Kenneth Warren is his name he lived I think in Indianapolis uh, he was a librarian he passed away some years ago but he um, he was I was introduced to him by one of my correspondents one of these Older poets I looked up to as a mentor. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I appeared in House Organ periodically for, for years, but that first poem was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> really bad.
0: So you started a, a correspondence with Sid Corman. Yeah. And he was really important to you. How, yeah, he was. How did he ch- help you out? How did he change your life, basically?
1: Well, the first line of the first letter he sent to me was your life is about to change. Wow. And it it absolutely did. And by the time I'd received his first letter, I had read uh, at least 20 books of his cuz I was living near the campus of University of Delaware at the time and they have they had quite a collection of his work. Oh wow. And um many of the books were very limited limited edition letterpress printed, you know, bound in Japanese style. Oh. So they they were very intimate and his poems are very short. And what I learned and, and what I gleaned from that experience of reading his work in that library was just uh, how intimate poetry could be between poet and reader with the book as a means to, to as the vehicle for, for those words um, and how the white space around the poem was just as important Almost as important as the words themselves, because that white space lends intimacy to the poem. And I I learned that just uh, just intuitively from reading his work. It wasn't anything I, um, you know, articulated or clarified, or I wasn't, you know, writing artist statements at the time or anything. But but it was a deep education just reading his books. And then when he started writing to me, well, I started writing to him. And he would write back right away, even though he lived in Japan, he would write back the day he got letters. He was, wow. he, he was very proud of himself for always getting back to people immediately. And so I would, you know, I'd write to him and I'd hear from him in a, in a couple of weeks. And uh, he really advanced my self-education by pointing me towards poets I had never heard of before who like Laurie Niedecker, who is a poet in the Midwest who wrote very short poems, very technically skilled short poems about the natural world around her. And also the, 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 the town she lived in, she wrote a kind of folk poetry, they call it, oh, okay. uh, but, but it was also very image. The images are very strong and clear in her work. And, um, You know, poets like that who I don't think I would have heard of at that time unless someone told me to read them. And I was so dependent on my correspondence suggesting things to me, read this, read that. And I always took their suggestions and Sid was always ready for a suggestion. And Sid was also very blunt in his criticism of the poems that I sent, which I needed. Mm -hmm. I needed that. I wanted it. I wasn't offended or put off by his uh, criticism that could be harsh. Yeah.
0: That, you know, how old were you at this time? Approximately 19. Nineteen. Wow. Yeah. That's, you know, that's impressive because you know, we, you and I have corresponded a little bit before this and I, you know, I went to college for photography and one of the big things that they would do would, would be to do critiques where you would shoot, you know, 10 rolls of film, be in the darkroom for hours, pick three or four images and put them up on the wall and the entire class would go around and critique them. And I wasn't ready for that. I, I took it personally. And so I wasn't prepared to be critiqued in, with my work. Much better at it now. But at that age, there's no way I could have done that. I, it's, it's so impressive to me that somebody that age could take that type of criticism and, and use it and learn from it. I, I was not mature enough to do that.
1: I think he respected it that I was able to take the criticism because he, I, I, you know, he was always very critical. He was the editor of a very important uh, literary magazine, really a seminal publication called Origin. And he initially accepted work by submission. People could just send work, whoever could just send work to Sid for yeah. consideration. And um, he rejected one woman rejected her poems, let, gave her some comments that were typical Sid. They were they were maybe kind of sharp. But he writes about it in the introduction to an anthology of, of stuff that was in origin. He said that this woman uh, threatened to kill him, basically.
2: Whoa!
1: Yeah, yeah, he got death threats for it. So that, at that point, he decided he was only going to uh, solicit poems from poets for origin. There would be no more open submissions. But yeah, he would still get he would get some very um dramatic responses from people <laughs> who did not like his criticism um he in some interview he mentioned that he told a younger kid younger guy that his poetry just wasn't there yet. You know, he's got a, got a long way to go. And the kid yeah. flipped out and started yelling at Sid, who was a very old man at the time. Oh, and wow. he kept saying something like, I, I just wanted some affirmation. And but Sid, and Sid was very interested in the word affirmation. Like this kid wanted my affirmation, you know? He was kind of taken aback by that. And this was in you know, the, early, the early aughts. And yeah. um, that kind of offense is even more prevalent now where, oh, for um, sure. I mean, yeah, you can't, I mean, these are people graduating from MFA programs. You'd think they'd be ready to get some critique cause they've spent, you know, three or four years in workshops, but in workshops now in MFA programs, you can't really be honest because you'll offend oh, someone. Yeah.
0: And you can't critique things anymore. It's just, it's unbelievable.
1: It's a real disservice to, to say the least, it's not just a disservice to the art, but it's contributing to its decline culturally. Poetry's always had a hard time kind of at least seeming to be relevant. I mean, I think poetry's not going, I know poetry's not going anywhere. It's always been a kind of underground current, that's essential, you know? It's part of that stream that goes, that culture goes downstream. Poetry is a major part of that that ecosystem flowing. And, um, but there are so many poets, or poets, quote unquote, that, uh, I just did air quotes, which is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Punch punch myself. I'm glad this isn't video, but yeah, yeah, air quotes, you know, poets who um, graduate from these programs, it's something like, it's thousands every year. They don't know how to take criticism. They don't know how to criticize. They don't know how to how to articulate why they don't like something, or even why they like something. You know, yeah. they, it's um, and I think to be an artist, you 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 have to be able to take criticism. Otherwise, you're just not going to learn, and it shows in there in the work that's being published predominantly now in, in major journals. It's just not, it's really not about the language. It's more about politics.
0: Well, and what's going to happen is you, you've got all these artists in, in various medium, you know, not just poetry, but in, in a lot of other mediums where they can't take the critique. And so they don't learn from it. And so the generation that follows is going to be uncritiqued because this generation can't they can't put into words what they like or what they don't like about the work that they're being shown. And so it's, just, I see it maybe getting even worse.
1: Oh, I think so. Yeah. It's going to continue to get worse. And what's the, you know, it's got to end at some point or, 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 or turn into something else. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with the MFA world, but, um, yeah. I I wish it would just collapse completely
0: yeah i I never understood why uh and and i have friends who did this because i went into photography to to do it commercially i mean i love the fine art aspect of it i do a lot of it now because i I don't i'm not a professional photographer anymore but i had friends who were going through the fine arts program and I, i was always curious as to what they expected to achieve by the end of it and nobody could ever really give me an
1: answer it's the same in poetry it's like what do you what do you want out of this because you know out of the thousands that graduate every year it what two percent one percent will actually get a job teaching creative writing yeah so it can't be about that you know is it because you you needed a two-year or three-year break from the world and that you're gonna be you're now you're in debt for for most of your life exactly I've heard that excuse you know like I wanted some uninterrupted time to work on my writing but that's another thing if you're you are if you're in it for life, if you're really devoted to poetry, you'll find the time no matter what. You'll yeah. you'll find you'll find the time and the space to write. So if you need workshops and institutional, you know, scaffolding around you to to write your, your poems that aren't very good anyway, you're <laughs> you're doomed.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. So what was your plan when you started – when you left school and you started to have to earn a living? Did you have aspirations of doing – of selling books or making poetry your living? Or was that going to be just something you did on the side always?
1: I never expected to make any kind of living off of poetry. And I didn't really expect to live very long because – I the environment that I came out of didn't provide me with very many tools to survive and I left home at a pretty fairly young age I, I was 18 or just turned 19 and lived in really terrible rented rooms with with pe- you know people who were not well and that went on for most of my early tw- Well, for a few years and then when I was 22 I moved to uh the coast of Humboldt County California with a girlfriend okay. and got away from Delaware and Philly got away from family and um you know we were splitting the rent it wasn't that expensive we were renting a, a small Victorian house we had plenty of space I think the, the landlord just liked us and then I think his parents had lived there and just died and he just wanted to make a little bit of money off of it so he let us rent the place and um Yeah, I got used to living in poverty, basically. And when that, when I, this girlfriend and I parted ways, I moved into a small shack that was literally a shack. It used to be the wood, the, used to be a woodshed. It was the woodshed behind a big Victorian house. Oh my God. And they, they did a half assed, like, um, renovation of this thing, but it was still slanted. You could roll like a pen or a pencil from one side to the other. I know, cause I did it. I did it many times drunk at night, just needing something to do. It was drafty. There's wasn't insulated. The humidity was crazy. I was right by the ocean. So, you know, black mold was, was in this place. It was lit. I mean, and I had no money. I was barely able to pay rent and yeah, it was those those years were extremely painful. And that was um, that went on for four years, five years wow. of just in, intense, intense poverty. But I didn't stop writing. I that wrote throughout the question. Yeah, no, I didn't know. I, I, nothing ever has deterred me from from writing. Nothing's ever been so bad that I didn't or don't feel compelled to write it's a way of seeing the world it's a way of being in the world and without it just as when i was a kid and now i'm 42 but it's still a means to a, a means of survival a way to survive you know it gives me a sense of order and it gives me a sense of purpose you know it anchors me to the world and it's what i needed because i was in such dire straits in the shack that if I hadn't had poetry uh, who knows what would have happened um and that's that's been the case several times in my life if it weren't for poetry I don't know where I would have been
0: yeah i mean it's it's a safety i mean you you came from an environment of substance abuse and suicide yeah and that's to not succumb to i mean i i know you you had the the problem with alcohol but you obviously don't have a problem with suicide right now cuz I'm talking to you so that's right so you know poetry has definitely helped you see through it it's it's amazing that something like poetry like an, like an art form can guide you through times that are so difficult it's it's amazing
1: it's an incredible gift yeah it's the yeah. greatest gift in my life poetry and you know that's we're jumping ahead but when but when I was essentially um Canceled. I'm doing air quotes again. Canceled. <laughs> That's
0: good for podcasting too. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. I was canceled, but it, and I think some of the people involved in that thought that I would just stop writing poetry, and was like. It, it made me want to write poetry even more because I needed it more. You know, I needed, I needed to feel grounded in the world in a in a very serious way and in a very immediate way. And there's nothing nothing like poetry that does that for me. Uh, so yeah, I wrote a book during that experience. It was, um, yeah, it didn't. They didn't have the the effect that they intended to have. Didn't uh, pan out.
0: Now, before you got canceled, you had to actually have some success so when did that start to happen when did the turn when, the, when did the turnaround happen from living in a shack to working at university of pennsylvania and, and publishing yeah. books and i had what, what turned it around
1: it, ha- it it started in the shack because oh. in in 2005 i had published my first couple of chap books do you know what a chap book is i
0: do not i wanted to ask you about that
1: okay it's a uh It's a book of poetry. It comes from Scottish uh, and it meant cheap book. And it (laughs) was when they would it was a and they were referring back then to pamphlets. But chapbooks are um, some of them are very finely printed, but it's it's under usually under 30 pages or so and bound with thread or staples. And it's uh, essentially a pamphlet um, booklet. Uh, And it's kind of like it to to compare it to music. It's like the it's like an EP (laughs) and then a full full length book is the full, you know, it's the full length album. Okay. And um, yeah, I published a couple uh, chapbooks. I self-published my first one, sent it to poets who I admired and a well-known poet. Who had a well-known blog at the time? People. It, this is when people were blogging. This is, right. uh, you know, in the early 2000s. <laughs> there was no social media, and he wrote a uh, really wonderful review of of my very first chapbook. And that, you know, people started writing to me. My community started to to grow, and then that led to the next chapbook. And then the chapbooks led to my first full-length book. I have a publisher in England. They're still one of my publishers. They published my first full-length book, and that book got some really great reviews. It caught the attention of some critics who were fairly well known, or at the time really well known, you know. And then I was had work in an anthology published by I think it was University of Iowa. It was all poems that were in homage to uh, in homage to William Carlos Williams, and so I was. It was while I was in the shack and publishing these chapbooks and then the, the full length book that things really started to coalesce in ways that I wasn't even fully conscious of because I was still drinking, uh, like, you know, all the time and wow. still ha- still had this um, drive to not survive. Like it was comfort to me to think that I don't have to endure this forever. You know, I didn't think I'd make it to 30. Wow. And um Jeez that made me feel good, which is a terrible thing. Um, I mean, it's a, you know, and it's amazing that I wrote the, I wrote three books in that shack. I don't know how and and the hell I did it. It's solely because the poetry was an anchor for me when there, there wasn't one. Wow. Um, because, you know, I didn't have anything socially. I had to steal food to survive. Um, yeah. I had a really kind neighbor who I was great friends with. And, you know, if she had like a box of stale cereal or something, she'd give it to me. But Joyce, if you're listening, thank you. <laughs> I do you gave me a lot more than, than stale cereal. You know, if they had a barbecue, they'd spare me a, you know, a, a leg, wow, chicken leg, Gosh. yeah, barbecue chicken leg or something. No, she was, but you know, I, I had basically one friend who was my neighbor and her cats were very close to me. I was close <laughs> to them. Um, and that was it, there was no, there was no poetry world in, in Arcata, California. Um, so I was still very much alone, and uh, I, I spent eight, nine years in the shack. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. And, and towards the end of that stay, I, I started to, you know, I was beginning, I was becoming cognizant of the fact that I was wrecking my body with drinking and also became i was i had a therapist who diagnosed me with PTSD so a lot of things started to make sense that a lot makes of the sense. symptoms i was having yeah it's like the um hypervigilance like that was like when i read about that i'm like holy shit like that's so that's what that is you know when i'm walking down the street and there's a loud noise and i feel like i'm going to die my heart starts racing it's like i'm not crazy you know this is actually part of trauma that goes back to, I don't know, probably before I can really remember. So that was when things really started to turn around at that point, I guess when I was like 28, 29.
0: Do you have a process to your writing? I mean, are you do you find something you're inspired to, to write about and then write? Or are you just constantly writing and then trying to fit what you've written? You know, This part will go with this poem, this part will go with this poem. Is there a set process?
1: Not a set process, but but generally there's there's a process, and it starts with writing in notebooks, uh, you know, real like paper, hard copy notebooks. Okay. Before COVID, I would do a lot of writing in in the coffee shop because I would walk from my apartment here in Massachusetts to the coffee shop, and walking really inspires me, gets the words flowing I will see something yes. that interests me an image or whatever and uh, then I would go to the coffee shop and work it out and um and then work it out even more on the computer screen so it would go from notebook to computer and then lots of revisions but lately I write a lot on my phone which feels like sacrilegious wow um <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> yeah I, that's one thing I have trouble with I can do a lot of things on my phone but I, I writing, man. I, I don't think I could do
1: that. I need to, I need to cut it out because, well, a friend of mine warned me, because I'm also, I'm writing a memoir as well. And, and I was writing some, I was writing the memoir for a while, drafting it on my phone because it, it gave me separation from like sitting at a desk and feeling like I was doing a job. And so the words just kind of came out I was writing about traumatic events. And so it felt easier to just kind of, I could type very fast with my thumbs. And anyway, a friend of mine warned me that, uh, Kanye West blew his thumbs out from texting too much. Oh wow. And he had to get he had to get cortisol <laughs> injections in his hands. I'm like, that's not going to happen to me. He's you know, I think he's like a year older than me anyway. You know, I've it's never like heard I, I got some time. Yeah. But now I have I have like I have terrible pain in my uh, right thumb. Is that when a new I start thing? to text?
0: Is that like like text your thumb is that like a tennis elbow? It,
1: it, if it's not it I it it probably should I mean I'm sure there are many people who suffer Maybe they don't, actually, because I think the, the people who use, who, who are typing with their thumbs as much as I do are probably teenagers who don't have to worry about, oh. you know, uh, <laughs> burning their thumb out. See, I did that. <laughs>
0: I got one of those swipe keyboards. I just swipe, and that's why I get so many typos on my texts and stuff. You should see how, oh, all right, I'll tell you a quick story. I'll probably edit this one out because I told this a couple of times, and, but uh, I had a chef, on the podcast that is an enormous mug man holy god
1: i drink a lot of water
0: <laughs> i started doing that too and because my doctor said i really should and my wife she's like you got to drink more water all it's doing is making me pee more and i don't really feel a big benefit i'm just <laughs> going to the bathroom more <laughs> anyway i had this band on called vast robot armies awesome guys and one of the guys is a bartender at a restaurant in Kansas City named The Belfry. And he's like, you, you know, you should have my boss on. She's awesome. She's really creative. I said, okay, who is she? All right, her name is Chef Selena Teo. She's been on uh, Top Chef Masters and um, Iron Chef America. and, and uh, Yeah, awesome. If she's open to coming on, I'd love to have her. He's like, all right, I'll, I'll check with her and I'll get you guys connected. So he's like, all right, she's... She said she's down with it. Just here's her number. Send her a text. So with my swiping thing, I start saying, hey, you know, uh, love to have you on. Uh, I normally record in the evenings on the weekdays. I can also do some weekends, but it came out. Sometimes I can do anal on weekends. (laughs) And I didn't even look and I hit it and I sent it. (laughs) because I was a, I was at work at the time and I had to, to text or to, to email. I got to do it on the sly. So a, a minute or two later, I look at my phone and I'm reading like, um, sometimes I do anal on the... We- what? <laughs> oh my gosh. So I'm like, okay, I've either blown it or she's got a good sense of humor. I guess I'll figure it out. So I leaned into it and I'm like, I said, I'm sorry for, the, for that. That was a mistake. I always do ain't on the weekdays (laughs) and i figured i've either blown it or she's gonna be cool with it and she just sent me back the crying laughing emoji she said weekday is fine but let's just keep it to the to the podcast (laughs) So, so i was like all right cool she's in so
1: that's a happy ending, so to speak. Yeah. It was. It, uh, yeah, I thought you were going to say you got canceled or something.
0: No, fortunately not yet. We'll see not what yet. happens if All this right. story gets leaked out too much, but uh, she's actually yeah. been on the podcast three times now, so. Oh, good. So, I got, I even lost where we were at. Holy shit. This is what happens in this show. Like I said, this is the least academic show you'll ever be on.
1: Oh, you were just, uh, you were asking about when, <laughs> when I started having success as a poet. Oh, that, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah.
0: When let's see, where was I gonna go with that? When did things really start to feel like you were successful? When when did the the jobs at at Penn come and and getting you know? I, I'm assuming I, I think I I understand this right that poets will get paid to do public readings and things like that. When did yeah. when did all that start to to happen?
1: Well, I moved from uh, the coast of Humboldt County. I moved from Arcata, California, to. The Pioneer Valley of Massachusetts, the western part of the state. Okay. Um, I live in East Hampton, which is near Northampton and Amherst, and Emily, where Emily Dickinson lived. And um, it's a really beautiful area. I moved out here because I had friends here who I knew through correspondence, other poets. And I felt like I needed to be around other poets. I was ready to be more uh, social, I guess. Okay. And so things started happening at greater frequency when I moved here. Um, I think cause I was able to connect with people at readings. I gave some readings, which I, I, I barely did that when I was in California because I did, I hated flying. So I'd have to really, uh, I'd have to put a lot of work into getting myself on an airplane. So I rarely ever gave re- readings. And when I did, I was just completely blown out of my mind, drunk and made absolute embarrassment of myself every single time and scandalized myself too. Um, in ways that will probably follow me for the rest of my life. Yeah. And so when I moved out here, a very good friend of mine said, uh, he arranged for me to read at a local kind of literary salon type establishment. And, uh, but he said, you cannot drink before you read. He got to promise me you won't drink before you read. And, and, I, and I, I agreed and uh, kept the promise and it felt so much better reading sober. I could oh, hear the, myself. I could hear my poems. You know, I could embody the poems with my voice in a way that it wasn't happening before because I was blackout drunk. I mean, wow, drunk to, yeah. I mean, like 20, 20 beers before. I would, I mean, I, wow. I, would go to a bar, I would go to a bar hours and hours before the reading and just drink, 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 drink. Wow. And then read. And it was never good. To say the least, it was never good. Um, So moving out here, having, uh, you know, friends face to face uh, who, who cared about me. I started to really change my life, went to AA, stopped drinking, totally stopped drinking, learned meditation, which really was so helpful and still is so helpful to this day, especially in dealing with you know, the, the PTSD symptoms I was talking about, the panic attacks, sure. anxiety. So I started to really develop a spiritual life too. And as I was healing physically and healing spiritually, the work improved, I think it, it progressed and more opportunities came to me. You know, I had a book accepted for publication by wave, wave books, which is a pretty prestigious, uh, small press in the poetry world. Okay. And it was that book that that really blew up. This was in two thousand and fifteen. That book got reviewed in The New York Times, got a glowing review in The New York Times, uh, various other major publications. So I started getting more invites to go read. You know, I would travel to read. I started to like it. Oh, cool. I and it, it didn't really hit me that I could have a life in poetry that could support me until I started doing those readings, which w- would pay me. And then I started working for University of Pennsylvania, which was amazing. I loved the program I worked for. They would bring me down to Philadelphia a couple times a year, treat me very nicely. And, and I knew that I could make a life out of, out of poetry. And that life in poetry ended the day the cancellation campaign started. Right. It, uh, yeah. and I knew it was over as soon as it started and it was it had only been a few well three years it had only been three years where of me really trying to, to build a life you know I didn't want to commit suicide I didn't want to die before a certain age anymore I no longer got comfort from thinking about taking myself out you yeah. know I was like I wanted that, to live that's good I wanted to live. I wanted to write. I I was enjoying teaching. You know, I never expected that from myself. And then it was, it was, it was gone uh, in in an instant.
0: Like I said, we don't really have to go into detail about this. Anybody who's interested, there's, there's more than enough resources out there, more than enough interviews you've already done and gone into great detail on this. And at some point you've got other things to talk about. Yeah, we don't have to go into to in, into it, but there's enough resources out there. You've done a bunch of podcasts and interviews about the whole cancellation situation. But if you want to give uh, just a brief overview uh, as to what happened, you know, you can you can go only go as detailed as you're comfortable going.
1: When I was living in the shack and drinking. I made uh, quite a fool of myself on the internet most nights. I made many enemies that way, Uh, I made many friends that way. Um, I was provocative, I was angry, I would start fights online, I would write manifestos. I was a wreck, and um, I thought that I would just drink myself to death eventually. I was really not looking at the the long view of things. Just There was no long view at the time. And so when I started to clean myself up and started to have success in poetry and got I got involved in an affair I shouldn't have been in. Um, it was toxic in, in so many ways. That ended. She was v- upset uh, in, in a way that was frightening. She started digging into my past relationships. It was a coordinated smear campaign. It went on for about six months, and then when Me Too happened, I believe she saw a golden opportunity and she got some of her friends involved and they wrote an anonymous letter claiming I called someone hot at a poetry reading. They sent it to my publishers. They sent it to University of Pennsylvania. There was no response to the letter. I am assuming because it was a ridiculous letter.
0: And And she was a poet as well, right?
1: She is a poet. Yeah. 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 And so there was there was competitiveness on, on her end on her. Side, I think she had often made reference. I mean, and I have all of this in, in Gmail. I never deleted any of our correspondence. She would say that she's jealous of my success, she's jealous of my ability to, to connect with people on social media. She's jealous of, and she got very jealous of Wes, uh, Wesleyan University Press uh, accepted one of my books for publication. Yeah, and um, that really seemed to push her over the edge. So the letter that they had sent out didn't work, didn't have any effect. Um, somebody actually at Wesleyan University Press told me that they, when they received it, they thought it was a joke because of the charge seemed so flimsy. I called someone hot at a poetry reading. Right, yeah. But what okay. it was was a fly trap. It was like if we put an accusation out there It has to be taken completely seriously. During Me Too, it had to be taken seriously. It didn't matter what the accusation was. And then any interaction I had with women was looked at through that lens, that this person is bad, this interaction I had with them must have been bad. Like one person posted on Facebook that I, I had looked at her like a meal, she said. He looked at me like a meal at a poetry reading and I was chilled to the bone. I'm like, I I remembered meeting this person. I didn't look at her like a meal. And I had done things that were truly wrong and offensive. I said things that were absolutely wrong and behaved in ways at a couple of those readings that were gross, you know? Crossed lines that that shouldn't have been crossed. I touched a woman's breasts at one of the the readings and um, that was the worst thing I had done and never did it again. I never drank at a reading again, apologized, but this is somebody who, the woman who I was in the affair with, she, when she was doing her orchestration of the uh, the, the campaign to to ruin my life, she reached out to her. She knew about it because I told her, I told this person everything. So she knew all the dirt, she knew all the skeletons. Mm -hmm. And the impression she gave this person is, no, he didn't, he hasn't changed. He's still an abuser and he's still a, a jerk you know so wow. my past came into the present and all the work I had done for years to change my life and to not be that person was disregarded because yeah. this woman I was in an affair with for the the last two and a half years is saying that it's all bullshit he's a bad person basically I you know I don't know what she wow. was telling people and there was no, you, you couldn't um, question these narratives that were being developed. No, um, no.
0: I remember that. I mean, it happened to a lot of people. Yeah. And like you said, you know, nobody that it happened to had the opportunity really to defend themselves.
1: Yeah, I tried. I posted on Facebook an apology. You know, I never should have done it. This is before anybody really had a blueprint for how to respond to, a, to a online mobbing. And uh, yeah, I apologized. And as, you know, this happens every time, the, the apology was just ripped apart, not accepted. But no matter what I had said, it wouldn't have been accepted.
0: Yeah, it's like the old lawyer's trick of saying yes or no question. Have you stopped beating your wife?
1: It's exactly like that. Yeah, it's exactly like that. Yeah. And because the insinuation was put out there that I'm an abuser, I'm an you know, that's the, they keep these words kept being repeated on social media. I'm an abuser. I'm a predator. Yeah. I'm a blah, blah, blah. And it's like, but there was never any evidence of that. There were no receipts being posted. And most of my interactions with people were online. So where are the receipts? And they won't show, there won't be receipts because you would see that these were consensual conversations I had with people that were later, you know, extrapolated and looked at through this lens of, wow, he's a, he's a real piece of shit. So clearly he had bad intentions.
0: That hit you where you live me because you lost your job at the pen. You lost publishers on one of the podcasts. you were even saying that some of the people that wanted you to blurb about their book said, no, thank you. So, Poetry saved you in, in that instance as well. You were still Absolutely. writing.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I'd never been at a, at a lower point wow. then. I mean, I was in shock for I, I don't know how long. I mean, the day that it all went down, January 10th, 2018, um, yeah, I was definitely in shock. I mean, that day it was that, that letter was posted. She posted a link to this letter. They, they threw the, le- the anonymous letter up on a WordPress site. And this, the person I had been in the affair with put the link up on all of her social media accounts. And that just went, that just blew up Yeah, because the poetry world didn't have a Me Too scandal yet. Right. I, I, I was it. And so a lot of anger, a lot of rage was being directed at me. I was, yeah, you know, the figurehead.
0: How big is the poetry community in, the, in that regard? I mean, I, I know it would affect your, your ability to be a published author or a speaking poet but how how big is that community that she was reaching
1: well when i say com- it, it's not really a community it's a network uh, it's a network of networks and they're all connected to the, this mfa grid across the country and so that's the commute. that's the poetry okay. world as they say that's the poetry world it's the more academic or it's a lot of it's coming out of academia mm-hmm because that's where poets can make money. And so the the poetry world revolves around these MFA programs. And so it's, it's uh, pro- more, I mean, it's thousands of people, you know, and yeah. it's in, and, and what, and if you're cut out from, from that poetry world, which is like the establishment poetry world, then you, you're also cut out of those opportunities to have your work seen, to have your work published, first off. Yeah and uh to make any to to give readings you're not going to be invited anymore i mean everything was completely everything was canceled that very day i mean yeah the pe- you know people i wrote blurbs for it was that the day of the day everything blew up they were writing to me at, to tell me they can't use my blurb. There were five—I think it's four or five—books I wrote a blurb for. Wow. And uh, but yeah, workshop I had planned, they pulled out, and they were very public and and you know they tweeted out that they canceled their workshop with with Joseph Massey and you know they all you kind. Know, they got many comments. Thank you, thank you, and oh, you know, blah blah it, blah.
0: It, it's unbelievable. I, I you know whatever happened to hearing both sides of the story of, of facing your accuser, even, you know, it, it went so far to one side. It, it, I can't even believe how blinded people got. It was, it
1: was blind rage. Yeah. And I understood where some, I, I had a sense of where a, a lot of the rage was coming from. People were upset. There are people in the poetry world who can be described as predators, but these people who may be predatory or who sound predatory, I've heard things over the years, they're the professors. They're the old professors who give people reference letters, who invite people to read at their schools, who give them blurbs, who whatever, favors, literary favors. That's the power. Those are the real power brokers in poetry.
0: And that happens and, in, in so many areas of higher education. Yeah. You know, it, it, not just the arts in in science and in in liberal arts you know that's how some students end up you know getting ahead whether they do that on purpose or they're groomed it happens all the
1: time that's right yeah and so none of the, none of the power structure didn't get they were not called out in any way right. shape or form and they tried to they put that on me. They, they were also make, trying to make a case that I had I had abused my power in the poetry world. I had power. And if I did, it beats me because I wasn't a publisher. <laughs> I wasn't a curator of a reading series. I, I wasn't judging any contests book contests are a big deal in poetry. Oh, it's not yeah. most people get their books published because there's a reading fee and the reading fees keep they help support the MFA programs. It's a vicious vampiric cycle. Wow. Oh, my! and I, I I wasn't tapped into any of that, but they, they had to make the case that I was powerful. And, um, yeah, there was no fighting the narrative. There's no fighting it. So it's It's, kind of like
0: the wizard of Oz, you know, pay no attention to the professors behind the curtain. Look at this guy over here.
1: Yeah. And, and, and I, like I said, I mean, I admit, I, I've admitted before me to like talked about what a wreck i was you know and yeah. i did things i regret and i was very public about getting sober and changing my life and so my shit was out there yeah you know just to say i i it's not like i um and i know i i, I realize i'm not i'm not saying this and i don't even know why i feel that like i should emphasize it but Yeah, I was a deeply flawed person who did things that were regrettable. But did I do things on the level and scale that they were implying? And it was all done through implication, calling me things like Predator and blah, blah, blah. Well, what are the examples you have of this? What are you talking about? Nobody had anything.
0: Most of it was done anonymously, right?
1: All anonymously. This one horrible article published in a now defunct uh, online magazine Written by a, a truly an activist journalist who had tweeted many times, "I hate men" and all kinds of shit like yeah. that. And I gave her an interview stupidly because I was desperate to be transparent. That was what I wanted to do. Well, uh, yeah, never you, should, uh, yeah.
0: You think that that can help? That that's what I should do. I mean, that that's a natural reaction. All right, let me explain my side. Let me let me tell you my, my side of it.
1: Yeah, my heart goes out to people who are in that same position and when they start apologizing you know there are people who respond don't apologize. why are you apologizing it's like you have you do you don't understand when you're being attacked in that way it is an instinct to to let people know that i'm not that i'm not that i'm not a predator i'm not uh you know i am say a safe person i'm not you know it's like it's yeah so yeah but that article that was written if if you look at it i mean it's an exercise in bad faith journalism it all of the people have pseudonyms there aren't any clear uh, accusations it's just it's it's bizarre it's making a lot out of very little
0: what has happened since then are you, are you obviously you're still writing has anybody turned around and said you know we shouldn't have done what we did you know either publishers employers or accusers has anybody done an about face and brought you back.
1: Well, no, no one's brought me back. Wow. That's the thing. I, I do hear from people occasionally, people who ghosted me or unfriended me or, and they apologize. They, they say they realized they, it went too far. Or they say lots of different things, yeah. but they would never, they would never say that in public. They would never defend me in public. Even wow. now, three, three years after the fact, they still won't. And, uh, never will probably and i did run into one of my tormentors who lives in this town oh wow and i talked about this on another podcast but just briefly i mean i sort of know this guy he's just an acquaintance and i don't know why he he latched on to me like he he really seemed to enjoy kicking the shit out of me online okay but i ran into him and he tried to walk right past me and i said you know you had a lot to say online <laughs> Well, here I am, why don't you say it to my face? And he got very, you know, I, he was irate. You know, like, what are you talking about? I'm like, what do you mean? You spent a year <laughs> tormenting the hell out of me. What do you think I'm talking about? Yeah, it's calling me the worst things imaginable. And uh, anyway, we, went on a, we went for a two-hour walk. Wow. And he ended up apologizing. Oh. And, yeah, and I felt... I felt pity for him because he's a very weak, broken individual, and I forgave him. I t- I told him that I forgive you. I don't want bad blood yes. with you. You live in the same town. I'm not holding any. I'm not going to hold a crutch oh, anymore. You. Yeah, that's and that it meant a lot to me to have that conversation. Um, even though what he did was terribly wrong, it doesn't let him off the hook. But forgiveness isn't really about you know, absolving someone of, of the things they did. It's really about letting your own self off the hook, not letting yourself be angry anymore, you know, seeing that person as a human being. So maybe one day they'll
0: come back around and they can see you as one as well.
1: I hope so. I I hope that conversation had some effect, but, uh, but other than that, um, no, it's not like, I do hear from people in the poetry world often, but it's always just private. Right, you know, no one's no one's asking me to send work to their magazine or whatever.
0: You know, that's their loss because, from what I've been reading, it's amazing. The I, I love the way you visually shape poems. I mean, there's there's an art to the placement of the word on the page. The negative space on the page was just as important as the words themselves, and it's just amazing what you're able to do. I've I'm. Looking at one of the, the poems I now contain, the uh, line you wrote that really has stuck with me and I, I, my favorites so far, I'm gonna air quote myself here. <laughs> no thing until detonated into its word. That one sentence, I, it's detonated into its word. It's just, that struck a chord with me and it, it's, it's making me think about things a lot differently. Just that one line something that isn't as, it's a thing but we we don't make it a thing until we give it a word and the, the way using the word detonated was just amazing to me that that really struck me
1: thank you yeah i think a lot about how language shapes and informs the world we're in our sense of a world and what would this world look or feel like without language. Would there be a world without language, you know, without this system of demarcating things and classifying them, you know, would, would these, would objects have, would objects be, have their own independence anymore? Like, it's it's like with language, we can identify things and we can find our way through a world that is still always bewildering. But, um, language is, uh, yeah I don't know if there's a world without language, but I think about that all the time. I suppose there is I mean in a very you know literal sense, but it wouldn't be the world that we know now
0: no, and unfortunately, I think that language and writing in general just doesn't seem to hold the value that it used to, and I've blamed the internet for that i mean if if you read pick up any article online and you can pull out five, ten typos. Nobody edits oh, yeah. just for basic grammar anymore. I, and I, like I said, I, I just kind of, I blame the proliferation of online <laughs> magazines, I guess, and more air quotes for, uh, for that. I, I, it's like quantity over quality.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Is that the same with, with, with modern poetry? I know you've been very critical of American, modern American poetry. Is that being affected in the same way?
1: Yeah. And a very actual and actually in a a literal sense, uh, there was a poetry movement for that went on for a few years uh, called alt lit, like alternative literature. And they their whole thing was using like Internet language typos, emojis. It's as terrible as it sounds. And um, I think that had a real influence on the next crop of poets that came up where they're really the 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 la- their language lacks a certain integrity as language it's like a painter who never learned how to draw it's like they don't have the basic ability to write a good sentence to write a strong sentence you know could yeah. they do that probably not I mean so the work reflects in a way the uh, fragmented attention span of 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 someone who basically is gr- who's grown up with with computers, with cell phones, with, with smartphones, with social media. Um, I think it's had a detrimental effect on poetry, but, but also the poets who take poetry seriously as an art form and not just as a vessel for self-expression. Maybe this is me being optimistic. I I am drinking tea here. uh, (laughs) The caffeine, the caffeine's coursing through my veins, (laughs) but, uh, maybe the real poets will shine even brighter when kind of these chips start to fall the chips of this you know the culture war so to speak i mean i hope to god it it ends at some point yeah. you know with the with the pendulum on the other side not too far on the other side not smashing through the uh, through the wall on the opposite right. end but just kind of stabilized poetry's po- real poets are will always exist as long as there are human beings there will be real poets will they necessarily be successful would i have been able to have the success that i had in 2000 in the early 2000s or the early te- teens i guess they would say yeah you <laughs> know with the, getting the books published working for you know getting readings you pen blah blah would that be even be happening now for me probably not because of who i am it's uh probably wouldn't wouldn't be happening and I'm not opposed to people wanting to diversify their magazines and 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 their, their MFA classes and whatnot but there's something um, destructive in about identity politics when it meets art and it's not just poetry it's the other arts as well because the politics tends to override the actual art the writing or the painting or the music it's it's more about the political message is what's you know has its front and center and um yeah
0: yeah and that's why i believe that somebody like you or the next ginsburg and karek is not going to come from an mfa program because that's not what they were about they weren't they didn't go through that to learn poetry how to, how to no. write poetry so you can't expect the next per, the next revolutionary influential poet to come through that program. It's going to be somebody who, who's completely outside of, of that whole community.
1: Yeah. Or, or someone who got kicked out yeah. of an MFA program and like saw the light or something. I don't know, exactly. but you're right. And I think that that MFA bubble is not sustainable. It just seems, I, I, how much longer can that go on? Especially yeah. if we enter another lockdown I know a lot, you know, some, a bunch of MFA programs ended up closing due to COVID. It was the only good thing about COVID. Yeah.
0: Well, that, so many people were available to do my podcast. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Well, yeah, I've never <laughs> lost hope. And I've, I've never lost hope in poetry, but I uh. have no hope, no hope whatsoever when it comes to poets, you know, <laughs> um, poets are the worst thing about poetry. They're too. <laughs> There are too many of them.
0: Oh, wow. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, about your poetry specifically, is I can obviously see how visual aspects influence your poetry, but does does the sound of words influence the words that you use in your poems?
1: Yeah. There's a title of a a book um, by one of my favorite poets. His name's Clark Coolidge, and the, the title of the book is Sound as Thought and i've that it to me is a whole poetics a whole kind of uh, artist statement ars poetica in in a nutshell it's the idea that the sound and the sense making are happening in tandem and so when i'm writing the sound is kind of leading on the phrases that i'm making and uh it happens all at the same time it it's not really explainable beyond when i hear musicians talk about especially jazz music, musicians talk about playing music it's it's a it's an intuitive thing it's not uh, there's nothing premeditated about it cuz i'm not a formal poet i don't write in in uh, metrically formal patterns i do write in syllabic forms with sometimes i write poems that have a certain number of syllables per line okay but even those poems are are really dictated by the sound. The sound carries the thought. When, and the thought is what kind of gives the poem its, its shape and its images and whatever sense it's ultimately trying to make. But sound is, is uh, as, as important as whatever the words are saying.
0: The combination of that and the visual aspect of the word placement. And if anybody wants an example, I, I would uh, direct them to your poem Vermonter. That is the perfect combination of both aspects of, of, I guess, if you actually want to see what I'm talking about, go take a look at that poem in the written form. And it's just, it's really striking as to how much of an influence it is.
1: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that was written on a train and I I really wanted to get the sense of movement. Wow. And what it looks like to just get a glimpse of something through a a train window. So when the lines are kind of moving off the margin, it's like, uh, I want to create a kind of, a certain kind of speed and a kind of blurring and a kind of you know it's yeah it's just like um what maybe a sculptor is trying to achieve you want to do you want to well I'll quote one of my favorite poets Robert Kelly he's uh, not not Robert Kelly Robert Creeley he said that form is never more than an extension of content so they go hand in hand oh wow yeah yeah so when did you get into photography it's interesting you ask in the way you put it because I, if it were like three months ago, I would have said I don't do photography and I don't want to talk about it because all I do is take pictures on my phone and put them on Instagram. So I don't, you know, I'm not a photographer. But lately, I've been taking it much more seriously, thanks to the Museum of Modern Art in New, in New York City because they have a photo challenge every month and oh, cool. they put out the they they put out a call for. People to to take pictures of light and shadow in dramatic ways. I don't know. But that got me going because I love taking pictures of shadows and lights and light and angles and lines. I like lines. I like how I I like to find the balance.
0: We've got an excellent
1: eye. Thank you. Yeah. I've really enjoyed
0: looking at, at, at your Instagram page.
1: Thanks. Yeah. So I've been using my phone in a different way. I don't just post Photos immediately to Instagram. I edit them on the phone. And so now I just really want to get down my sense of what composition means. And I will probably soon, I'll get a digital camera and kind of upgrade equipment and learn how to use it. Yeah. And um, yeah, so photography is an area that I'm I'm well into at this point.
0: You have a a newsletter that you put out every... Well, for, for subscribers, it's like every two weeks and then you can do a paid subscription where you, there's more. How, how does that work? How do, how do people subscribe to that and, and get your work?
1: Yeah, the way it's structured. Uh, so if you subscribe, if you're a free subscriber, you'll get a poem every other week. If you're a paid subscriber, it's a, a poem every week. Um, I've, based, I've been keeping up with it. And I've been really enjoying it because it's an alternative it's an alternative means of of publication because I don't even bother to try to get my work published in um, in journals anymore and like you know, mainstream poetry journals. I, I had poems accepted by the Colorado Review last year, and they were just um, at the last minute the managing editor pulled my work and I knew why. But they wouldn't tell me why. But, but you know, I'm reaching probably more people through my Substack newsletter than I would reach anyway in the Colorado Review. And that's, I mean, I, I have a, I have a strong readership, and that's one of the blessings of the cancellation is that I've had to rebuild a readership, and the readership that I've rebuilt for myself is. Uh, larger than the one I had before, and more responsive. And um,
0: that's wonderful.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the the newsletter is, is a it's exciting. I'm I, happy to have an outlet for the work, and I'm happy to have readers. And people can find that at josephmassey.substack.com.
0: Have you ever had a, thought about combining the photography and the poetry into a a single piece?
1: I have. Yeah. But I've the handful of times I've, I've looked up, you know, services or website, the costs and then the kind of cheap materials they use. It just was not, um, appealing to me at all.
0: Ah, no, Well, that makes sense. Where, where can people follow you? I hate to say on social media, but you know, that's where people follow other people most of the time and get their information. How can people follow you and, and get some poetry?
1: Twitter and Instagram, I'm, I'm active on both of those platforms, and it's the same username for each one, J, just the, the letter J, Massey Poet. J Massey Poet at Twitter or J Massey Poet at Instagram, and uh, that's where they can find more.
0: And they can subscribe to your Substack. stack. And uh, this has been wonderful. If I like your style of poetry. Who should I check out? Who I should I backtrack and and influ- who influenced you that I that I really should start looking into?
1: I would definitely check out loreen Niedecker. Okay. N I E D E C K E R. She's a, an amazing poet and not read enough. And I would also check out a poet named William Bronk, B R O N K, who writes a really f- kind of philosophical poetry. It may seem dry at first, but give it give it some time, give it a, give it a chance. Okay. Let his let his voice kind of work its way into your head, and um, I guess the last one, if I could just mention three, uh, yeah. the other one would be Pam Rehm, R E H M, and I, I highly recommend any of her books. The Larger Nature, or it's called Larger Nature. Uh, that's a great book. Uh, Small Works it's a great book. All of her books are great.
0: Last question, and I, I'll let you go looking back on it he gets ripped for some of his poetry now how does jim morrison's poetry look to you now that you're in your 40s
1: i was looking at it just recently because they his collected poems w- was published like i think this month oh wow uh, or, or the collected written works or something like that and i read the the amazon preview just to see just to see yeah and um I think he was a incredibly promising poet and if he had lived longer maybe he would have been a great poet you know but a lot of the po- the poems I've seen by him now they're fragmentary and they're they're not really congealing he's still finding himself and you have to you know he died when he was 27 yeah most poets don't find their 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 voice, so to speak, until they're you know, in their thirties. So,
0: did you ever end up getting into the Doors' music at all?
1: Yeah, very yeah, very deeply actually. Oh, cool. Yeah, and I st- I still really like the Doors. I mean, I, I yeah, the Doors are the Doors are great. I, I think underrated. I think they're an amazing band.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think they're just they're so unique. Their sound is just so unique. No, no one has done what they've done before or since. You, you can't replicate that
1: sound. You can't, and they're just amazing musicians and are completely unique and eccentric, you know, with, I mean, Ray Manzarek played the bass with one hand and the bass keyboard with one hand and the keyboard with the other. I listen to live recordings and it just boggles my mind how you could do that. Yeah, they're great. Well,
0: I would love to have you back on anytime.
1: If- well, and We'll stay in touch. I, I yeah. You're a decent guy and I, I really that. enjoy, I enjoyed the conversation, man. Uh,
0: yeah. Th- To hear a poet say that makes me happy.
1: Yeah, it was great. (laughs) I really appreciate it.